Go ahead and take your Bibles and open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, I, I don't know about you, I, I love every time we get to, to see baptisms take place, it's such a precious gift from the Lord. It's such a sweet reminder, um, even as we've just prayed about our own salvation, about the grace that's been extended to every one of us in the gospel. Uh, I love the symbolism of baptism. You know, baptism was God's idea. This isn't man's idea. God wanted to give us a symbol, a visible symbol to publicly profess and in some ways demonstrate the reality of our faith, that inward uh, transformation is expressed with this outward picture and symbol. And by the way, if, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you have not been baptized, I hope this would be just such an encouragement to you. It's such an important step of obedience in the Christian life, and we really believe that God blesses this step of obedience, that God takes this and uses it not just to bless you personally, but to bless the body of Christ, the family of God as we get to uh, unite our hearts together in our common salvation. As we think about the picture of baptism, I want to kind of launch off of that into our passage this morning, that the symbolism there is really powerful and profound. It's symbolic of what happens to us when we are saved. Again, that inward reality being expressed in an outward symbol. The picture of going under the water, that picture of death to our old self. We have died in Christ, and we're raised to newness of life just as Christ has been raised to life. But the symbolism is unique because of how it unites us to Jesus Christ. It's a picture not just of what he's done for us, but how he has brought us into his own life, and as a result, how he has given us his very life. It's that picture of life that reminds us, listen, that in Christ we are given a new position, a new status. While once we were sinners, separated from God, alienated from the life of God, now we are brought into fellowship and communion with God. We are now given a unique status and position of sonship, of intimacy with God, joint heirs together with Christ. Our position has fundamentally changed, and what I want you to see this morning from God's word is that when our position changes, so too do the privileges that come with that position. Sometimes we forget about the unique and sweet privileges of being a follower of Jesus Christ. This morning, you'll notice the title of the message is The Privilege of Our Position, and I just want to lay that before you. I believe that's what Peter and the Spirit of God is laying before us this morning, that with great position comes great privilege. But our problem in the Christian life so very often is that we don't often feel like our position is that great. We don't often take stock of the privileges that are actually ours in Jesus Christ. In fact, if we consider our position, especially if we're considering our position horizontally um, in light of the way the world views us, sometimes it's very difficult to see the benefit of being a follower of Jesus Christ. In the world's eyes, Christians are lowly. They're despised. Paul says that Christians are viewed as foolish. We're the scum of the world. People look at us and think that we're ignorant for what we believe. At the very least, they look at us and they think we're strange. We're out of step maybe with the culture. We're on the wrong side of history. You know, we feel like exiles in this world sometimes because spiritually speaking, we are exiles in this world. That's what Peter has identified at the very beginning of this letter. Christians are exiles. This is not our home. We're wandering through another homeland, aching and longing for the world that awaits us. 
God's people have always felt out of step and out of sync with the world. In fact, that's the way that God has designed it. We are intended to feel that way. He wants us to feel that way. He wants us to see that there is to be a recognizable difference between those who are saved, who have the position of being in Christ, and those who are not. God's people, from the earliest times, have always been considered strangers, sojourners, aliens, foreigners, God has always intended for them to be viewed as different and unique and peculiar. In fact, the language that Peter uses in chapter 2 here connects the New Testament people of God with the Old Testament people of God with just this very idea. And in effect, Peter is trying to encourage the people of God and saying, listen, this is no different. The way you feel is no different from, when, from the way the Old Testament people of God have always felt Nowhere, in fact, in the New Testament is the language previously reserved for Old Testament Israel so vividly applied to the church of Jesus Christ. The church, in other words, is being viewed here as an extension and continuation of the believing remnant of God's Old Covenant people. And so the titles and the honors and the responsibilities, and most importantly for us this morning, the privileges that were once reserved for Israel, the Old Testament people of God are now applied without qualification to the new covenant people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. And this is intended to be such an encouragement for God's people. Our position as Christians in this world often comes with great pressure, with great pain, and with great problems, even great persecution, but here we need to understand that it also comes with an unparalleled privilege. Say, what exactly is the privilege of our position? Here's what Peter lays out for us. The privilege of our position is this, that we are the place of God's presence. We have been brought into intimate fellowship with God. Here's how he unpacks this for us using so much Old Testament imagery and language. Look at verse 4 with me. Let's read through verse 8. He says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious... You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Here again, Peter pulls in all of this Old Testament imagery, and he wants to use it to demonstrate to us and to prove to us the unique position that God has given us and the unique privileges that we get. As God calls us into a relationship with himself, the best part of that relationship is that we get God himself. And he uses this imagery from the Old Testament because this is exactly what God was always holding out in front of his people. The idea that they got God, that they had his presence among them, was to be a powerful motivator to continue to live this life faithfully before him. And so here's what we see first. We are the place for God's presence becoming a spiritual house. He says, as you come to him, 
a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, look at this language, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. He weaves together these two uh, different images here from the Old Testament. Both of them have incredible significance when it comes to understanding the, the privilege of being in the presence of God of experiencing the presence of God. The first image is is that of a house made from a living stone, that that corner stone, so to speak, who then makes us into living stones. Our connection with this living stone has a radical impact and transformative effect on our own lives. These living stones are built up into this spiritual house. The imagery that Peter is intending to hold out before us is the image of the temple, the Old Testament house of God, the place where God himself dwelt in a unique way. The the temple is an immensely important theological theme throughout the scriptures, from both the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, from cover to cover. The temple and before that the tabernacle were not only symbolic, but in reality, containing the very presence of God, at least for a time in the nation of Israel. It was, again, in a unique way, the place where God allowed his glory to descend, his presence to be with his people. They were a people who were unlike all the other nations of the earth. While all the other nations went and worshipped false gods, Israel was the place and the people who worshipped the true and living God. Their God was not far off. Their God was not distant. Their God was with them, was among them, was working in their midst. The temple was a powerful reminder. It was the center of life for the Jewish people. God was constantly communicating through this powerful picture of this house of God that he was there with his people. They belonged to him and he to them. But what we see throughout the scripture is that the theme of the temple begins to develop and unfold. And this Old Testament reality pointed to a New Testament promise. There was something more at play. There was something better at work. God's presence would dwell not just among his people, but God's presence would come to dwell within his people. It would no longer be there in a temporary fashion. It would be there in a permanent way. The physical temple, in other words, was always pointing to a greater spiritual temple that God was promising to build. And here Peter tells us that this temple in the Old Testament points to the church, to the people of God. A temple that is no longer physical in nature. It's not about brick and mortar. Instead, it is about stones that are alive and they're made alive because of their connection to the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. This temple is organic. It's biological in nature, and it is fueled with the very presence of God, the Spirit of God that dwells within His people. You see, the the symbolism of baptism also reminds us, listen, that as we give our lives to Christ and we're united to Him, we are brought into that intimate fellowship with our Creator. The presence and the Spirit of God actually comes to live within us changing us and transforming us, leading us and guiding us, teaching us and instructing us, illuminating the truth of God's word in our lives, making us look more like Jesus Christ. We have the promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. 
The body of Christ is, according to the New Testament scriptures, the true temple of God's indwelling presence. The glory of the Lord now abides permanently and powerfully in us and through the Holy Spirit. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, 21 and 22. Again, a common theme throughout the New Testament. Here's what he says about the church. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Peter says exactly what Paul says here. Peter points us to the reality that, that this is an ongoing project of God. Notice the language here that we are being built up. That This verb is in the passive sense, and it reminds us, listen, that we are not the ones doing the building. We are not the primary builders here. We are the ones who are being acted upon by an outside agent, and this agent that is acting upon us is only God himself. God, in other words, is concerned about his house. He is building up his house the way he has designed it to be, the way he desires it to be. He is the master builder. And the building of God's house happens in two ways. Notice this. Uh, as we become living stones, we're built up as living stones. So two ways in which God is building this house. The first way is this, that God is adding new stones to the building in an ongoing way. As people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, there's a new stone that becomes alive and then is placed into the structure of this living temple. But there's a secondary way in which we are being built up by God. And, and that is essentially, you can think of it like this, that God is taking those existing stones and he is continuing, continuing to chisel them away, to sand them down, to polish them as they sit in place in the proper place in the temple. In other words, God is perfecting those stones. He is beautifying those stones. He is sanctifying those who have already been called and chosen by him and by his glorious grace. As we think about this, we need to understand that, again, this work is an ongoing project. God is still saving people, and God is still, thankfully, sanctifying his people. I don't know much about construction, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I don't have um, a handy bone in my body, and uh, I don't enjoy construction, but I do know this. Listen, I do, and some of you know this. Some of you are going through renos right now. You know this. If you're in a construction project, things almost never go the way you plan, right? Isn't that true? Some of you are shaking your heads. You're like, yeah, this has been a nightmare. <laughs> right? You start the project, and you've you got this timeline all set. You think you know what you're doing, and all of a sudden, you run into a problem. You run into a hiccup. And listen, I don't have personal experience with this, but I watch HGTV too, Okay. There's unforeseen costs, unique obstacles that come up in the process. But one thing I do know is that if you have the right person overseeing the job, there's no need to worry. That the obstacles that you perceive will eventually be overcome, right? I mean, I mean like if you got Chip and Joanna at the helm, you're going to be okay, right? The place is going to look dynamite when it's finished. You see, God is building his house. That's what the word of God wants us to know. God is building his house. God has built this house the way he has designed this house, and he is actively involved in this process. 
This is so important to God. He loves the church because this is the place he has chosen to allow his presence to dwell in a uniquely powerful way. He has chosen to manifest his presence and the power of his spirit here in this place amongst his people like he has not promised to do in any other context, in any other way. We live in such a unique time in the age of the church. The people of God being knit together by the Spirit of God. It may not always look like progress here in the life of the church, maybe in your personal life, but we can be sure that he is at work. You say, how is he at work in building his house? Again, let me just say it like this. It's the presence of his Spirit, the power of his Word, and the participation of his people that become the primary means through which God is building us up into a spiritual house. This is not a let go and let God mentality. The Spirit of God works through means. He is working internally within us. He is working using the Word of God, and He's working through us to accomplish His good purposes in one another's lives. Remember the context that we find ourselves in. Peter is speaking to the body of Christ, and he's striving to present to us this case that we are to be unified, pressing on, fighting for one another's spiritual growth. You see how the Spirit is working in that? He's working through us. And if I can encourage you, listen, we participate with the Spirit. Some plant and some water. God gives the growth, but let's not mistake that we have a role to play in this process. So you say, how can I, how can I be used by God so that he might continue to build his body effectively in this place? Here's three ways you can do that. First is this, fervently pray. Fervently pray. Pray for the power of God's Spirit to be at work amongst us. Depend upon God to do what only He can do. Demonstrate your trust and faith and expectation that God is the one who has all the power and that if we would just be a people who prayed, God would bless that and unleash His power upon us and do more amongst us than we can possibly fathom or imagine. We just had a praise and prayer night last week. And I'll tell you, it was one of the, the largest prayer and praise nights we've had. And if you were there, if you were there, I mean, you know, it was such a sweet and powerful night as a church family together. I mean, they always are. But I'm it was just, it's just uniquely powerful when God's people get together and we unite our hearts in prayer and we petition our God and we lay our hearts bare before God and we believe in faith that God must act, God must work. God, apart from you, we can do nothing. So God, show up. We're gonna bang at the door until you get sick and tired of hearing the knocking and you come and answer according to your good purposes and for the glory of your great name. We must be a people who are fervently praying. Let me give you another way. We must be a people who are faithfully obeying. Fervently pray, but you need to faithfully obey. Again, let me just bring you back into the context. Remember what Peter's telling us to do? Be holy as God is holy. We are to be a holy people. We are to be actively hearing and heeding the word of God. We are to be responding to the word of God and its power in our lives by humbly submitting ourselves, by putting off the old man and putting on the new man in Jesus Christ. We are to be living in the fear of God, driven to honor him and obey him and esteem him in every area of our lives. Let me give you one more way. Fervently pray, faithfully obey and I'm going to keep the rhyming scheme going here. Firmly stay. Firmly stay. You know, this is part of what Peter is worried about. 
that, that we would be tempted to, to, to stray, to stray from what we know is true, to, to compromise and to capitulate. Remember, the people of God are being persecuted. It's not easy to follow Jesus Christ in this context. Listen, the same is true for you and I. As the pressure mounts, as the, the difficulties increase in following Jesus Christ in, in a culture that is just anti-God, anti-Jesus Christ, it is going to be important for us to firmly stay together as the people of God. Again, in the context, he's calling on the community of God to be just that, to be firmly rooted in and grounded in the community of faith, to know that we can't do this alone, that if we forsake the gathering of the saints, then we do so to our own peril. I mean, let me remind you of what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. He says this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, listen, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see how important it is, listen, for us to be pulling in together, to be drawing near together. It may seem at times like the church doesn't stand a chance in this world. It may seem like the, the world and Satan is tearing down the, the temple of God one stone at a time, but we need to be reminded that God is at work. Jesus said definitively, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The purpose of God's building his temple is now unfolded for us. Once our confidence is firmly established and we know that we are to be becoming a spiritual house by the power of God within us, enjoying his presence among us, listen to what we do next, bringing our spiritual worship. We are to be bringing our spiritual worship. He kind of shifts metaphors here, but they're deeply intertwined. Don't miss the, the overlap of these two metaphors and these two Old Testament pictures and realities. He says that we are built up, growing up and strengthened as living stones into a spiritual house. Listen to this, to be, here's the purpose, to be a holy priesthood. And what is this priesthood called to do? To offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the break between priests and people was sharp. The priesthood, of course, began with Aaron, the brother of Moses. And it was Aaron who stood before a holy God on behalf of a sinful people. In some respects, Aaron functioned as an intermediary between God and the world. As such, the priests were the ones intimately acquainted with God. God had established a priesthood in the nation of Israel. These priests had a unique position amongst God's people, and especially when it came to temple worship. But God had also said that the people of Israel as a whole were to be a kingdom of priests. That in a sense, every person of Israel was a part of the priesthood. And the point was that Israel had been brought into such close fellowship with God that their access to him was priestly in nature. They were all, in a sense, a kind of priest because they were unlike the rest of the world. The rest of the world didn't have access to God like Israel had access to God. They didn't enjoy the presence of God like Israel enjoyed the presence of God. 
Israel had an all-access pass. They got to have intimate fellowship with God. They got to hear His voice. They got to read His Word. They had the unique privilege of seeing His power at work on their behalf in unique ways. But here what Peter does is he takes this Old Testament language, again, once reserved for Israel, and he now applies it to the church. He says, in effect, that we are now all priests, that those who are in Christ, who hold this position of being brought into the church of Jesus Christ, we are now priests. There's no longer an elite priesthood that has a claim of special access to God that no longer uh, have that claim of special privileges in worship or in fellowship with God, every single Christian now with confidence, Hebrews 4.16 says, can draw near to the throne of grace. And do you see how important this truth is for the people of God who are being persecuted, who feel like uh, their connection and their position in Christ is actually a detriment from a worldly vantage point? You see how encouraging this is when everything they seem to be facing is hard? It's as if God is coming alongside them and saying to them, listen, you may be outsiders with the world, but you're insiders with me. And you don't need to be so concerned about being an insider with the world if you're an insider with me. I mean, it is far sweeter and far better. In fact, the world around you, they, they long to be insiders with me even though they don't know it. They were made to be insiders with me. They were made for my presence. They were made to know me. Every human being made to know God. And all the world around you is seeking ways to find some kind of connection with the God of this universe and fail to do so, but you have been brought in to intimate fellowship with God. You have what they so desperately need and what they so desperately long for, and they can never have apart from God's grace. And as priests, he says, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices, notice this, that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Again, you can, you can imagine the Old Testament context when the people of God had to bring um, acceptable sacrifices, acceptable in the sense that they were the ones prescribed by God himself, but more than that, acceptable in that they were pure. God had prescribed not only the kind of sacrifices, but the purity of the sacrifices required. They had to be sacrificed a particular way, at particular times, and here he says this, that we come as a priesthood and we offer spiritual sacrifices. We don't bring physical animals into a physical temple. We walk into the spiritual temple of God and we bring forth spiritual sacrifices. And these sacrifices are, are pleasing to God. They're made acceptable to God only one way through Jesus Christ. We know what the word of God teaches, that God accepts perfect sacrifices, and we know what the Word of God also says, that our sacrifices are flawed, that we can't, in our sinful humanity, bring a perfect sacrifice to God. We, we simply can't do it. Therefore, we come and we offer our sacrifices through Jesus Christ. And God takes our sacrifices, our, our, our efforts and our offerings that are tainted, yes, even with sin and maybe motives that aren't always pure, and through Jesus Christ, God purges them, he purifies them, he forgives our sin, and he receives unto himself our spiritual offerings, and they become to him a pleasing and fragrant aroma. 
Peter is telling us too, by the way, that our sacrifices, um, they're actually not about individual things necessarily that we bring in the temple as much as they are about a way of life for us. You know, worship oftentimes in the Christian life is, is thought of simply by, by singing songs. And by the way, singing is one of the greatest forms of worship. But the Word of God is consistently teaching us that we need to think of worship as being far bigger and far broader than that. Your worship is not just how well you sing, how loud you sing, how often you sing. It's about how you live your life in a manner that's pleasing to God. This is why the scriptures teach us repeatedly that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. The way we walk brings value and blessing and honor and glory to God. Paul, in fact, says it like this in Romans 12, 1 and 2, with very familiar, very similar language to what Peter is saying here. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Here it is again, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And notice how he defines this. See, what, what does this mean for my life? He says, this, don't be conformed to this world. This is Peter's message. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't be like the world. You're different. You're separate. Instead, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, he says, take your life, and all of your life needs to be viewed now as an opportunity to offer worship to God. Every decision you make, every thought you have, every act of behavior in your life is an opportunity to either, listen, to glorify God or to glorify someone or something else. He's teaching us how our lives are to change. And in effect, what he's actually doing is he's saying, your life needs to reorient back to what I've designed it to be in the first place. I've always designed you to be a worshiper. I have made humanity to not only know me and love me and to enjoy my presence, but to live in constant worship and adoration of me. Anything we do, then, in service to God can be thought of as a spiritual sacrifice that is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Anything we do for His glory then becomes a continual sweet aroma that ascends to the throne and brings Him great delight. And, and listen, church family, listen, can I, just, can I just encourage you, nothing, nothing in your life can be a put above worship of God. And Peter reminds us of the unmatched privilege of entering into the presence of the Lord. And he reminds us here that it contains a double privilege. We are privileged to enter into the presence of God. That's what our position gives us access to. But we're privileged to actually offer praise to God. It's one of the greatest privileges and joys in the Christian life is to sing of his praises. So let me just make it very clear. Although worship is not only or all uh, singing, it is actually in part, a massive part, the way we sing. We, we worship God, yes, with our life and how we live, but we must worship God with our lips. I mean, we must be a people who are declaring the excellencies of our God. We must be willing to sing with passion the praises of our King. God's praises must rise from the lips of all his people assembled in his presence and joining with all the saints and the angels. If I can encourage you, we need to be a singing people. We have to be. And if you don't, I said this before, let me just say, if you don't like singing, you're not going to like heaven. You're just not, okay? By the way, the same thing goes for pursuing holiness. If you don't like holiness, you're not going to like heaven. If you don't like God, you're not going to like heaven. 
But listen, when you love God, when you see what he's done for you, you cannot but help respond in praise. When you truly get the gospel, when you truly contemplate the reality of God's grace towards you in Jesus Christ, listen, the goal, the end goal of all of that is for your heart to erupt in praise to the one who has done it all for you, amen? So we must be a people who sing from the heart, believing that our God is so worthy of our praise. Our worship of God is not to gain his favor, it is because of our response to his grace. We bring spiritual worship because by his grace, lastly, we are believing the spiritual truth. He says this in verse 4. He says, as you come to him, you know, Peter is, is speaking to Christians and he's reminding them of What's happened in their life already? Right before this, he said, if indeed you've tasted and seen, you've tasted that the Lord is good. He said, look, if you've come to him, he said, what does it mean to come to Jesus? It simply means this. It means to believe in him. It means to trust him and it means to follow him. It means to bow the knee to him as Lord and master. He said, if you come to him as a living stone, I love how Jesus is defined here, by the way. Your belief in Jesus is everything. That's what he's going to go on to unfold here. He calls Jesus the living stone. The term stone or cornerstone is used repeatedly here, and it's applied to Jesus over and over in this passage in order to portray him as the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ, the only thing we can put our hope upon. He's living because he rose from the grave. He's the living stone because he conquered sin and death. He's the living stone because he is the only one who can give life to those who are dead and their trespasses and sins. You see, the position of Christians depends upon the position of Christ, for we are joined to him. Peter goes on to say that this living stone was rejected by men, and yet notice this, he was chosen and precious in the sight of God. Peter is holding out two options for humanity here. He's saying when it comes to Jesus, there can only be two responses. You can come to him in faith and trust. You can place your hope in him and in him alone, the way God has designed. Or you can reject him. You can join a long line of human beings who have looked at Jesus, who have assessed Jesus, and who have determined that Jesus wasn't the way that they wanted to go. Jesus wasn't good enough. He wasn't the right fit. He cost too much. It required too much of my life. You can come to Jesus, Peter says, or you can reject him. And you see, coming to him actually aligns you with God. For Jesus, again, is referred to as the chosen and precious one in the sight of God. God looks at Jesus, in other words, and says, here here is the one that I have planned to send. Here is the way that I have designed to rescue humanity. I have chosen Jesus. I have chosen this path of the gospel. I have chosen him to suffer and die and rise. And he is precious in my sight. You see, the very beginning of faith is this idea that you must find Jesus precious. You too 
must trust in him. You must see him as the cornerstone upon which you must find your life and you must build your life. And by coming to him, and only by coming to him does your position change, and then you enter into the realm of spiritual privilege, of enjoying the the presence of God, of knowing God intimately in your life. But you see, rejecting him puts you in opposition to God and incurs the judgment and wrath of God. And so Peter now actually, he he supports his argument by quoting or referencing um, three passages from the Old Testament. He first, in verse 6, quotes from Isaiah 28, verse 16. Listen to what he says here. He says, for it stands in Scripture. He wants the Scriptures to be the authority of how we understand salvation. He says, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Isaiah 28, in its original context, is actually a message of judgment for Israel's disobedience and unbelief. Isaiah had encouraged the people all throughout his letter not to put their trust in foreign alliances or in military strength, but only in the Lord. You see, Isaiah was always warning the people in the Old Testament, listen, you've got two options. You can trust God for your strength and for your hope and for your refuge, or you can trust in the ways of the world. You can run to alliances that you devised. You can run to your own wisdom. You can run to your own plans and strategies. But if you choose that path, know this. You are, in effect, rejecting the Lord's way, and you're rejecting the Lord himself. And Israel was warned about this repeatedly, and yet, here's here's the crazy part. Though God warned them, though they saw the consequences of, of their forefathers rejecting God and disobeying and not trusting God, many times over, the people of God still choose their way, not God's way. Those who do not trust in him will perish. But those, he says, who put their faith in him will triumph. And what he alludes to here is that the reason that their foundation was off, was wrong, what they put their trust in was not right and couldn't sustain them was because the cornerstone was wrong. The cornerstone of the foundation would be the very first stone to be selected and carefully selected and then put in place. The cornerstone had to be perfectly square and true, Everything else had to align perfectly with this cornerstone. And that means this, that if the cornerstone was off, even by uh, by a fraction, by a percentage, listen, the whole structure would then be compromised. It may give the appearances of, of looking like a strong and stable building, but really at the very ground level, the foundation would be entirely off and it would just be a matter of time before the edifice that was built upon that foundation came crumbling down. kind of reminds you a little bit of the foolish man and the wise man that Jesus talked about, doesn't it? The two different men who chose two different paths, the one built his house upon uh, the, the rock, and the storms came, the wind blew, the waters rose. Great was that storm, but in that day of trouble, in the day, listen, of God's judgment, here's the picture, listen, that house stood firm because it was built upon the rock. But there was another man, and in the same 
way he decided to build his house upon the, sta- the sand. Unstable foundation. Maybe the house looked pretty, maybe it looked stable, but when that same storm came, when the, the winds raged, when the waters came, that house collapsed. And the word of God says, and great was its fall. The word of God over and over wants us to understand that it is the foundation that matters most and at the very heart of that foundation must be the proper cornerstone. What you choose to put your trust in is of immense importance. And the cornerstone in the Old Testament was always God himself. You must trust in the Lord. He must be what you run to for refuge, for safety, and for strength. Don't trust in anything else other than God. And when we come into the New Testament, the picture of God that we trust in is Jesus Christ himself. We trust in his saving power. In verse 7, he builds upon this idea. You see, those who believe in him, they will not be put to shame in the end. But instead, notice this verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe. Listen, in, in the world's eyes, listen, what we believe, again, it's foolishness, it's ignorant, it's silly we're out of, again, we're out of step with the culture. The world looks at you guys, you can't get with the times. What you believe is archaic. You've put your trust in an ancient book. And we, are, we answer that, no, we haven't. We've put our trust in the eternal God. But at the end of the day, listen, the world wants to shame us because of what we believe. But at the end of it all, they will be the ones who face the shame of God. We will be the ones, though we are in dishonor and disrepute here and now, we will be the ones who will experience honor and glory in the sight of God. This is the hope that he holds out for all followers of Jesus Christ. And so he quotes now from Psalm 118, verse 22, a psalm that is quoted often in the New Testament. And he says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The psalm, again, in its original context, describes the return of the king to the temple to give thanks after his victory over his enemies. The stone rejected in in this historical context of the psalm was the Davidic king. And the builders in this context were the foreign nations who rejected the rule of the anointed king of Israel. They refused to see that God was working through Israel to reach the nations. They refused to see that God had anointed a king to be king over all the earth. And in rejecting this king, they brought about their own demise and destruction. But fascinatingly, Jesus quoted this psalm in a surprising way. He's speaking to the Pharisees, the religious elite, those who were more concerned, again, about the external religiosity and and had no inward love for God and desire to honor him. They wanted glory for themselves. And Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, he looks at the Pharisees and he tells them this parable, this parable of the tenants, the wicked tenants. He talks about how, how the, the, the owner of the land, he left for a while, and then he, he would send a, a delegate to go and to collect the, the money to see how things were going. And every time that he sent uh, one of these delegates into the wicked tenant's um, hands, they would take him and kill him. And finally, at the end, he sends his own son saying, surely, surely they'll listen to my own son. 
And as he sends his very own son, Jesus uses this as a parable to explain and point to the reality that these men, these Jews, these Pharisees were actually the wicked tenants in the story and they were about to take the son of God sent to save them from their sins and they were going to put him to death in utter and total rejection. The one they should have accepted and honored is the one they hung on a cross. The one they should have loved and adored was the one they spat on and mocked. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, having heard Jesus tell this parable, having himself wrestled with this truth of what Jesus was saying, he speaks in Acts chapter 4 to the rulers and the elders of Israel. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Spirit of God had descended upon him. He becomes a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what he says as he quotes this same passage. He says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And he adds this so powerfully, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He holds out again the offer of salvation, and he says, would you come? Come to him. Don't reject him. And in fact, he then goes on here, Peter does, to quote from Isaiah, or to allude to Isaiah chapter 8. And he describes the rejection like this, that, they, that Jesus becomes, this cornerstone becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he says that they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. In the context of Isaiah chapter 8, Israel and Judah are called upon to fear and trust the Lord rather than to fear the nations around them. And it was predicted and prophesied and it was predetermined that they would stumble over this stone. That they would trip over this rock of offense. They wouldn't find him lovely and precious. They would find him heinous and offensive. And Jesus had said that he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he whom it falls will be crushed. You see, what Peter says is what Jesus says. It's what Peter preached in Acts chapter 4, that to reject Jesus is to do so again to your own destruction. That this stumbling is because of a refusal to believe the word of God, the word about Jesus Christ, the word of salvation, the good news of the gospel, that only God can save sinners through the cross of Jesus Christ. This is a willful rebellion under the sovereign hand of God, this is the willful rebellion of the human heart. It is a refusal to believe the gospel message, the only spiritual truth that can save. Those who reject the gospel will face eternal dishonor and shame. But can you hear the words of Peter ringing in your ears today, echoing in your heart and in your soul, but all those who come to him 
Would you come to him today? This is the call of the gospel. Come to him. Believe in him. Put your faith and trust in him alone. Stop trusting in the cornerstones that the world offers. They are not square. They are not true. This edifice will certainly fall. The house will crumble. It will not sustain in the day of trouble, in the day of God's wrath, and in the day of God's judgment. But you can build your life upon the rock. Come to him, Jesus Christ, the living stone, the cornerstone. You will not be put to shame. You will have honor and glory because you have chosen to build your house upon the rock. The one who is himself chosen and precious in the sight of God. Come to him, the Bible says. Stand upon him in faith as the only hope of salvation and the only foundation upon which to build your life. If you're in Christ, Christian, just hear this call to your own heart. Peter is speaking to you and me today too, and he's saying, keep coming to him. Keep coming to him. Keep choosing him over the world. Keep holding him as precious and believing that one day your faith will be made sight, and on that day, you will not be put to shame. You will be vindicated. You will receive honor and praise from the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Believe what the word of God says in Psalm 34, verse 5, that all those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Come to him. This is the privilege of our position. We're invited to come to him, to keep coming to him. In Christ, our cornerstone, we are the place of God's presence, becoming a spiritual house, bringing our spiritual worship, believing the spiritual truth. Father, we thank you that you have invited us to come to yourself. Thank you, God, that in your kindness and grace and in your mercy, God, you have sought us out. God, we know as we reflect upon our lives, as we reflect upon the scriptures, that there was no way we could get to you. We couldn't claw our way to, Lord. We couldn't, to you, Lord, we couldn't earn your favor we couldn't be acceptable enough in your sight, not apart from your son, Jesus Christ. And so, God, it is our glad confession this morning. It is our joyful confession. God, it is our confession of praise this morning that Christ and Christ alone is our cornerstone. That we have put our hope and faith in the living stone, and he is building us up into living stones, into a, a, a house of your holiness. Father, we pray that you would unite our hearts in this, that, Lord, you would increase our joy in this, that you would encourage us, Lord, as we continue to set our sights upon you, our living stone, our cornerstone. God, may you drive us deeper into intimacy with you, and may we rejoice in the great privilege we have in having you. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.